This morning we continue our series in the book of Titus. This is our penultimate sermon in the series. Don't you usually get to use that word, so I thought I would. Uh... So we'll be in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It's found on page 1121 in your Spanish Bibles and page 998 in your English Bibles. As you're turning there, I was thinking about this this past week as I was preparing for this passage, for this message. I remembered that, you know, several years ago, I visited Greenville, South Carolina. I was there for our General Assembly, the Presbyterian Church in America. We gather once a year as pastors and representative elders from congregations all over the country, all over North America, Canada, the United States, and even some of the Caribbean islands. We gather together for a general assembly, and it was in Greenville. Greenville was never a place that I had any really desire to visit. I hadn't really heard much about Greenville, if anything at all, and so I didn't really have a desire to visit there. I mean, Greenville does have a few things that um, people might be aware of in Greenville. Uh, Bob Jones University is in Greenville, which is one reason I didn't want to visit there. Um, sorry, if you're a Bob Jones graduate or supporter, but um, made, made it a place that had not really been someplace that I had desired to visit. But one of my college roommates was living there, and so I was going to be there for the week, and so I thought, well, I'll get in touch with him and spend some time with him. And so we went out for lunch, and we, uh, he showed me around the city, and when I was, I was surprised and I was shocked to find out, to see how beautiful this little city of Greenville, South Carolina was. It was clear that a lot of money had recently been invested, had been put into the city to restore its beauty, or even to make it beautiful, because there was, as I, as I heard, it was not necessarily the most beautiful city. It was known for, uh, for carpet, for the carpet business. And so you had factories that, would, that were along the river and would dump all kinds of industrial waste into the river. And it just wasn't a very pleasant place to be. So I asked my friend what happened. I assumed that there was a government project or something that brought about this transformation but I was surprised to find out that while there was certainly government involvement, you have to have government involvement when it comes to uh, a city, uh, to renewal and things like that, it was largely due to local business owners and developers, many of whom were Christians, working together for the common good. You see, they loved their city. They loved this place of Greenville, South Carolina, even if it wasn't that beautiful of a place. They loved this place that God had placed them, and they were convinced that it was good for them to work to see it renewed, even at a potential financial loss. They went into this project believing they would actually lose money to see this restoration take place. But they believed it was good work, even at a potential financial loss. I don't remember what the exact numbers are now, but they invested millions upon millions of dollars, not knowing if they would see a return on their investment. But they didn't invest the money for financial return. They invested it for the good of others. This morning, Paul instructs Titus, the, 
and the church in Crete and us to seek the common good, to live in such a way that looks to the good of others, those outside the church even, before we seek our own good. So let's read Titus 3, verses 1 through 11. Again, found on page 1121 in your Spanish Bibles and page 998 in your English Bibles. Paul continues his letter to Titus by saying, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all, for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning and every day. Lord, that you would by your Spirit, help us to be transformed by your Word. And Lord, to see our lives conformed to it, to actually do what it says. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we asked the question, have you let grace train you? Have you rested upon Christ alone for your standing before God or do you continue to relentlessly train, like we talked about Rafa Nadal, relentlessly training to be at the top of his game, hoping that you'll be good enough to win your Heavenly Father's approval? What we saw is that his approval has already been won for you, not because of your restless training, but because of the relentless love of Jesus Christ, who relentlessly trained for each of us, for his people. We saw that God's saving grace trains us in how to live, how to wait, and trains us in who we are, sons and daughters of the King, sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. Paul continues in his letter by moving from the grace that we've received and being trained by grace for good works and what that looks like in the life of the believer. He sets up how we're to live in, in a juxtapos juxtaposition to how we lived in the past. This past life is to help us understand how we are to live in Christ. And as we look at this this morning, as we look at the way Paul sets this up, it, it begs the question, 
as Christians, as those who have been saved by grace, as those who have received what Paul talks about in verses 11 through 14, that we looked at last week and what Paul will then again come back to in our, in our passage this morning, begs the question, do we forget who we were? Do we forget who we were? Do we forget those, the ways in which we lived and acted what we understood as our place in the world apart from Christ? Do we forget who we were? Do we forget that we lived in ways that Paul describes in verse 3? That we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasure, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do we forget who we were? Or does the ways in which we lived apart from Christ inform us in how we're to live as followers of Christ? Does understanding who we were apart from the grace of God in Christ Jesus help to inform us of how we're to live as followers of Christ? You know, for me, that was a very hard thing to come to grips with because I grew up in the church. I professed faith at a very young age, and I grew up thinking <laughs> that this didn't apply to me, that I was good, as I talked about several weeks ago, that it did not apply to me because I had grown up in the church and I was a good person. But what we see, if we are honest with ourselves, what we see in Scripture, and if we're honest with ourselves, is that no one is good. Even those who have grown up in the church and have professed faith at a young age and have tried to live the good life, so to speak, we all are sinners saved by grace. We all, apart from Christ Jesus, are, as Paul describes, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So this morning, Paul says, as recipients of the grace of God in Jesus, we are called to a new way of living. It's our main point. As recipients of the grace of God in Jesus, we are called to a new way of living. And we see that in three ways, living for the common good, by the good living in you. And then Paul says, but don't be fooled. This isn't good. So the good, living for the common good because of the good living in you, but don't be fooled. This isn't good. And so first we come to living for the common good. As recipients of the grace of God in Jesus, we are called to a new way of living living for the common good. We see this in verses 1 and 2, and then again in verse 8. And what's interesting is that it, when we think about the context of Paul speak, you know, writing to Titus, who's in Crete, we're reminded of how Paul spoke of those who were in the church, and they were, they were uh, teaching false doctrine. They were destroying homes. And we heard that the Cretans we're always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul's referring to those in the church by referring to a, 
um, a poet who had spoken of these things about Crete. Uh, Polybius, the uh, Greek historian, wrote that Cretes were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and um, internecine wars. So, I mean, Paul is speaking to a culture that really seeks their own good, seeks what is best for them, seeks their own self-interest. What's interesting is that, if we're honest, that's pretty much every culture. (laughs) It's not just the Cretans. They may have just been really good at it. (laughs) But everyone in every place seeks our own good. And so Paul outlines what what is it to be like for us as believers in Christ, to live in the places, in the cultures, in the communities, in the societies that we have been placed in. And he says that remind them to be submissive or to have a willing obedience. It's implied a willing obedience to be ready to do these things, a willing obedience in Christ Jesus. In Romans 13, 3, Paul talks about this in a different sense, showing obedience to the uh, magistrate who would tend towards good works since the magistrate's aim is generally in favor of good in punishing evil. It doesn't happen all the time, but that is in general what the magistrate's role is in society. And so Paul is kind of reiterating that again. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. That the good work that we do in society is, t- is going to tend, in Paul's mind and in experience, for the most part, to be what is actually seeking good, that the civil authorities should be seeking on behalf of their people. Good works, in Paul's vocabulary, means work done in such a way as to please God more than ourselves and more than others. Good works carry out the purposes of God seen in His creation of the world. They make the world a better place. Good works is making the world a better place. They help redeem the brokenness of the world and reconcile people to one another and to God. Devotion to this kind of work drives us as Christians more than a passion to do their jobs well or more than to do, to be good neighbors for the sake of what we can get or however else it might, we might look at different ways in which we might seek to do good for our own personal gain, it is about what is good for others. And Paul outlines kind of some of these things that we are, how we are to live this out. <coughs> we are to seek, we are to be ready for every good work. We are to speak evil of no one. We are to avoid quarreling. We are to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy for all people. What is Paul getting at? When he talks about quarreling, the Greek word is amachos. You can remember that, amachos, amacho, right? Amachos. He's talking about this idea of not being a brawler, not being a fighter. doesn't mean we don't stand up for right principles, but it does does mean that we should understand that our principles could, in fact, be wrong, for one, or that there might be another way that is also right or also has truth to it as well. 
This idea of not quarreling is to even the point of realizing that others can hold other convictions, even opposite convictions of ours, and that doesn't make them bad. Does that sound like something that a society that we live in could, could hear, even us as Christians? To not be a brawler, to not be a fighter, to not quarrel over these things. Again, Paul is not saying that we don't stand for right principles. Paul over and over again talks about how we are to be those who stand for what is right. But sometimes those right principles aren't founded on what God says is right. It's founded on what we desire for our own good, even using God's word to get there. Paul goes on to say we are to be gentle. Now, we might think of that as, you know, kind of like this, you know, idea that we're like, you know, I don't know, like a, a bunny is gentle, right? But that's not what Paul is getting at. He's saying that in this idea of being gentle, the, in, in the Greek, it's this idea of yielding, not urging one's rights for being forbearing to act kindly, Aristotle defined this word uh, in the Greek, the, it, which is uh, epikais, to consider not only the letter of the law, but also the mind and intention of the legislator. To not consider only the letter of the law, but also the mind and intention of the legislator. So those who practice this are ready to temper justice with mercy and to avoid what Aristotle called the injustice, which often lies in being strictly just. It's very different from the innate greediness and spirit of aggression towards others which characterized the, Cre the Cretans. You see, what Paul's getting at, there's no amount of debate, no amount of aggressive action, no amount of being right, no getting the right people into political office that will bring ultimate change. There's nothing wrong with desiring to persuade others of the truth. I mean, in fact, Paul, over and over again throughout his ministry, throughout the book of Acts, is seeking to persuade others of the truth. But Paul's reminding us that it is so easy for us to move from seeking to persuade out of love and a desire for the good of others. See, Paul is always persuading, not for his own good. Paul's always persuading for the good of others and out of love for them. It's easy for us to move from seeking to persuade out of love and a desire for the good of others, others to aggressively be seeking to be right, to be aggressively seeking to get our way or wanting is what is best for me or even what is best for my people whatever group that you might want to put yourself in. So Paul reminds us to be gentle, to be yielding to others, to not demand to be right, to not demand to get our way. He goes on to say, to show perfect courtesy to all people, this idea of courtesy is temper under control. One who can patiently bear wrongs that have been done against them. But 
is ready to help others who have been wronged or injured. You see, Paul is reminding us that we, because of who we are in Christ Jesus, because of what has been done for us, because of the good shown to us in Christ Jesus by God our Father, can actually put aside what might even be best for us to make sure that others receive what is best for them. You know, Paul here is not talking about giving speeches or passing out tracts or telling people about Jesus. Certainly, Paul would not be opposed to those things. But in this passage this morning, he is directly talking about good works in the ordinary sense of doing things that others recognize will meet people's needs, that seek to do what is good for others, even at our own dispense, even, even if they don't meet, doesn't meet our own desires. Verses 2 and 8 make it very clear that we are to live this way, not just in the church. Right? Paul has talked extensively about how we live our lives in the church up until this point. But in verse 2 and verse 8, we are shown by Paul, we are given direct understanding. This is not a continuation of how we are to live in the church. Of course, this is how we are to live in the church because of what he's already talked about. This stuff lines up directly with how we are to live in the church. But Paul goes then and says, the way that you've been instructed to live in the church, guess what? It actually extends outside of the church community. It goes beyond the people that get this. It goes beyond the people who have said, yes, I believe this too, and I'm a part of this with you. It goes to those who might actually be in direct opposition against you. Because Paul says here in verse 2 that we're to show this toward all people. And in the Greek, all means all. It's a pastor joke, sorry. (laughs) All means all. And then Paul, again in verse 8, in case you missed it the first time, he bookends it by reminding us that this is, a trust, this is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And the implied there is, the, is all. This is excellent and profitable for all people. You see, this is to be lived out in our lives, in the marketplace, on the job, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. We are God's people who are to live for the common good, the good in us for the common good. And unfortunately, Paul's reminding us this morning that we can forget this calling. We can be quick to despise others. We can be quick to seek our own good, not just individually, but as the church. We can be quick to look for ways to gain advantages that are good for us and may even hurt others. You know, there there are a lot of things that we can, as God's people, as I experienced both in the UK and as I've experienced here, there are a lot of things that we can, as God's people, kind of 
mourn the loss of what has been called Christendom. But let me be very frank. Christendom also, while it brought a lot of good, also we as God's people forgot sometimes that the good that we experienced wasn't the good that everyone experienced in that setting. You see, Paul's speaking to a different context. He's speaking to a context where the, where the Christians, where Christendom had not yet blossomed, had not yet grown. And so these were, they were in what kind of like what we read about in Jeremiah, kind of in Babylon, in a place that did not seek their good. But once Christendom came, once we started to live in, in that kind of era of, of Christendom, yes, a lot of good came from that. But there was also a lot of bad that those who were not in the kingdom, in the church, experienced because the church didn't seek the common good all the time. For us as Christians, to have this godly passion for good works, we must understand what makes these good works possible and why we are doing them. And so Paul gets to that in our second point, the good living in you, verses 3 through 7. Paul says we have to understand who we were. We have to understand our own sin. We should understand that we are sinners saved by grace. That our sin that we were once in, that we've already talked about, the foolishness, the disobedience, being led astray by being slaves to various passions and pleasures, the malice and envy, the hatred for others and hating one another, those things that we had in a litany of other things. You can go through pastoral epistles and Paul will just list them all in different places. That our sin that we have been saved from should lead us to be understanding towards the sin of others. The goodness that has been given to us in Christ does not make us proud. It makes us supremely grateful. We can never view others with contempt or arrogant condemnation because Paul says we were them. If God had viewed them with contempt and arrogance, like we sometimes view those who are outside the church in sin, we would never have been saved ourselves. John Bradford, the 16th century English evangelist and reformer, famously said, There but for the grace of God goes I. He said that while he was watching criminals go to the gallows. You see, John Bradford and all those who have taken that quote and used it in their ministry, in their lives, understood the fact that like Paul said, we were once them. We've been brought to life. We've been given new life. We've been given good. In verse 4, Paul then after being reminding us of who we were and how we should view others because of how we were viewed by God and how 
we were, how we actually lived, he reminds us that, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by washing, regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul takes this opposition to the malice and envy, the hateful things and the hateful lives we, we live, and he shows that the opposition to that is that God showed kindness and love towards people like that, towards us. A reminder that we have nothing to be proud of ourselves and how good we are. Because if we view ourselves out of our own goodness and we view ourselves as how good we are because of what we do, you know what happens then? It leads us to despise others. It leads us to despise others who aren't Christians. Or it leads us to despise, it can leave us to despise Christians because we think they aren't doing it right. They aren't godly enough. They aren't righteous enough. But it's because of God's loving kindness that we've been made new, that we've been saved. This regeneration, this, that we have been given a new life. We've been regenerated. This once for all has been done. This re, but then there's this renewing process that goes on daily through the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is both and. It's the work of regeneration that is a once and for all that we have been saved by grace through faith. We've been justified. And then the renewing process of the Holy Spirit that we are renewed day by day, more and more, over and over again. The grace that God grants in salvation results in a godly, though imperfect, life of obedience and good works. What if we reminded of our, ourselves of that every day? What, how would that change the way that we actually lived our lives? What if we got up every day and were reminded, as Paul reminds us here, apart from God's grace, this is who I was, this is who I am apart from His grace. And how would that, how would we respond throughout our day's activities would it be, help us to become more effective servants of Christ and more effective stewards of His creation? I believe it would. I think that's what Paul's saying. He's like, remind yourselves. As I said last week, this is when, when Paul tells Titus to declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you in verse 15. I said, I come to you every week and remind you over and over and over again and remind myself. Because I only remind you of what I myself need to be reminded of. God's grace and mercy, that apart from that, this is who I was. This is who I am. These good works serve God and people, but they aren't done to earn God's favor and to earn favor from people. The production of good faith, of good works in the life of His people is not opposite of faith, but is actually the outflow of the faith that we have in Christ Jesus. It is the response we give to our Heavenly Father who has given us this rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. 
in Titus 3.5. It is having been justified by his grace that we might become heirs to the eternal hope, Titus 3.7. And as a result, we devote ourselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. This is the good living in us the good of the grace and mercy we've received from Jesus Christ, we've received from the Father, that flows out for us to live for good works, for the common good. So Paul c- commands us to live for the common good, reminds us that we do that by the good living in us. But then he f- ends this by saying, don't be fooled by what's not good, verses 9 through 11. It's easy for Christians to get caught up in what seem like important debates. There are all kinds of good things to debate about how we apply these doctrines, but it's so easy to get caught up in those things, and what happens is it actually takes us away from what is good. Paul's outlining all these all these things, and he's and what he's what he what his his audience would 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 understand is that he's talking about some of the Greek philosophy, some of what the rabbis and the scribes would teach, and would debate about. They were deep into these aspects of things, and Paul warns his audience against it, and he warns us not to get caught up in those types of debates. Instead of these things, we are to be about good works, which God has given to us to do in His world. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't have discussions about right interpretations of doctrine, but if it does not produce the fruit of good works, it's a waste of time, Paul says. And he says that a person like this is one who stirs up division. Paul says, you know what? You shouldn't be stirring up division because true faith doesn't divide. True faith unites. And if this person is dividing up, is stirring up division, this person, by extension, if they've been warned and do not re- repent, they are not truly understanding the faith that they say they have. True faith doesn't divide, it unites. I shared several weeks ago that that was me once. That I would debate and stir up division because I thought I was right. I had all the answers. How come you can't see that? Is that you? Remember Paul's instructions throughout this letter. We are to be those who seek unity, not division. We are to be those who are seeking the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ and the good of others. Right doctrine leads to good works, and good works make the truth of God believable to others. This is the aim behind Christian devotion to good works at their jobs, in their neighborhoods, at school, in their activities, in every sphere of life, to live out their actions, the truth that they proclaim with their lips. As recipients of the grace of God in Jesus, we are called to a new way of living. Let's pray.
Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have indeed called us to a new way of living. That the good that you've given us in your son, Jesus Christ, by grace, by his mercy, by your mercy through grace we've received in him, Lord God, that we can indeed be those who live for the common good. Lord, we pray that you, by your spirit, empower us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond.